Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Today's episode is brought to you by KeepKey, the easy, safe, and simple way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and many other digital assets. There's no time like the present to protect yourself from hackers, malware, and viruses. Visit KeepKey.com to order your secure hardware wallet today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. And before I begin today's episode, a quick life update. I'm currently writing a book, uh, which is exciting. It's about our exponential and fragile context and how crypto can help us smooth the transition through this digital revolution. Uh, so I'm not sure on the title yet, uh, but I'll be posting updates through Medium and on Twitter. Um, so check me out there and hoping to have it done by the end of this year. So I'll let you know also through the podcast when that happens. Uh, cool. So let's get to today's episode. So today's episode is with Ethan Zuckerman from MIT's Center for Civic Media, and he's kind of like an academic trying to fix Facebook. It's not perfect, but it's not too far off. Um, and bear with me for a bit. I'm going to give kind of a long intro, but it was a really interesting episode, so kind of bear with me. Um, so four points. The first is, so we talk about um, new social networks and how to make social networks better for long-term human flourishing, and we talk also about blockchain-based networks. Um, and him and some colleagues did some research, academic research, and wrote an article for Wired about this stuff. And their analysis was, man, stuff like Steam and basic attention token isn't really going to work right now. Um, and this is for kind of classic challenges that you would expect, um, challenges like acquiring users and gaining the attention of developers, um, something like you know new security threats, needing to keep your private key, whatever, UX problems. Um, also, these new platforms haven't tackled media challenges like echo chambers and filter bubbles. And then finally, no matter what, you have economies of scale and network effects, which make larger platforms more useful. Um, and so no matter what, essentially, you have a recipe for consolidation. So even if we might want to be decentralized now, everything vectors towards centralization. Um, I think those are all pretty legitimate critiques. Um, but there are two things that I wish I would have pushed back on that I didn't. Um, the first is on acquiring users, um, his first point there, and how... In reality, it is true that it's difficult to acquire users, but um, with blockchain-based financial incentives, um, we are actually able to beat uh, these massive aggregators like Facebook. So this is like saying, essentially, at the beginning of a network, um, usually it was very hard to in incentivize someone to join a social network at the beginning because it's not very good if there's only 10 people on it. But now, um, when that UX value is lower, when that network value is low, you can financially incentivize people with tokens um, to be early adopters. So that has actually been a good strategy for blockchain networks to jumpstart their networks. Um, and we'll see if that plays out in the future, but I think that's a little bit of a diminishment to his first point about challenging the challenge to acquire users. Um, the second piece is that ooh, we talked about other ways that we can like fix uh, social networks. And um, we talked about something like uh, Parlio, which is this cool thing that is optimized for civil discourse and it was acquired by Quora. And the difficult thing with these intentional social networks is that 
Uh, and something we didn't talk about, but I wish we would have talked about is, you know, these other social networks like Facebook are just, they're really optimized for addiction, variable reward, for really plugging into your limbic system and for giving you dopamine um, and, and addicting you. And so trying to, for, for someone to try to be intentional with their social networks is is admirable and we want that, um, but it's tough to be intentional when all these existing solutions are essentially cheating by hijacking your limbic system. Um, so this I'll say, Ethan is relatively bearish on blockchain-based networks to, um, you know, take down big aggregators like Facebook and present a better version uh, of a positive social network future, which I agree with to some extent, and uh, I think there's a lot of texture there as well. Uh, The second piece that we talk about is Lawrence Lessig's pathetic dot theory, which is also something that I talked about with Primavera de Filippi on a recent podcast. Um, And uh, this pathetic dot theory essentially says that, hey, if you're trying to regulate something or change systems, then the, you can do it from four different perspectives, either by changing norms, by messing with markets, um, by messing with like actual uh, architecture or code, and then also by changing law itself. Um, and the interesting, two interesting pieces on this, the first is that it's always good to recognize that um, if it, you can essentially think of something like the pathetic dot theory as a... Um, something where people are trying to get to the same goals but through different means whether it's norms markets architecture or law so for example with crypto we're trying to mess with markets and code a bunch um but um and and our goal is essentially to you know redistribute power or something like that but there are other people that are also trying to redistribute power structures um through something like norms by kind of changing um the way people think about institutionalized power structures and so it's just a good reminder for all of us in the crypto world to say hey what are our goals here and although we're trying to change those by changing technical infrastructure and code and financial incentives with markets there are other people that are trying to achieve those same goals um, and we should co-evolve with them and be happy um, when they achieve them so that's the first point and the second point on this pathetic dot theory is that you know right now i'm writing this book and i'm trying to understand these macro system loops and and how essentially how does the world work from a hyper hyper macro level um and is this pathetic dot theory is one of these multifaceted co-evolving systems that tries to understand the world um and it's actually it's relatively similar the funny thing is that it's relatively similar to something like marx's theory of um you know base and superstructure where you say hey you have your base um infrastructure which is essentially equal to lessig's architecture you also have your social economic contract contract structure um, from Marxist theory, and that is essentially equal to the markets um, from the uh, Lawrence Lessig's pathetic dot theory, and then you also have, um, in Marxist theory, this superstructure, which is kind of the ideology or the values that you're going for, and that's essentially equal to the norms um, within Lawrence Lessig's theory. So, this is to say, they kind of, they kind of, I'm vocal processing out here and thinking out loud, but they kind of map onto each other in this way. I'm trying to synthesize these macro-systemic frameworks, and the question I guess that I would ask my listeners is, and it's kind of an interesting, difficult question to ask, is what? How do these co-evolving systems work, and how does how do these co-evolving systems essentially propagate through time to determine our future? I think that's a tough question, but I think that's an important question for us to think about. And there are lots of different frameworks that people have presented in the past, and I think that there could be a good synthesis of them. Um, so the third piece here is talking about uh, the incentives of academia. We talk about that for a bit, and the first exciting piece is that um you know ethan really has a shared outcomes perspective here where he really what he's trying to do he's just producing proof of concepts and then to show people hey this is a better world that we could live in and then he doesn't actually care who builds the thing whether it's him whether it's facebook whether it's a startup um he just cares that you know 
social media is more in alignment with our reality. So I think that that's a cool perspective that he has. The difficult thing that we talk about is is this metric of success for him. Um, I think this gets into, it's hard for someone in academia, but it's, I, th- I think in general hard, um, especially in his version of academia that's not just directly related to producing research papers in high-quality journals. Um, but I think that when you think about metrics of success more generally we traditionally think of them from the company perspective and that's kind of you know easy in some sense where you just say hey what are our kpis you know whether it's roi for investors if i'm a venture capitalist or whether it's making profit or monthly recurring revenue or whatever those are kind of um we know those well but as we transition to this new world where we have single double triple bottom line just kind of n-dimensional ways that we think about value and think about how we're producing value for the world it's going to be more difficult for us to think about metrics of success so um you hear ethan and i kind of wrestle with that in this episode um and then the fourth final piece here is that you know at the end of this episode we talk about how in initial america press and information um how that actually was a precursor to the nation state and governance here um and the, the statistic is that the USPS, the United States Postal Service, was actually 80% of U.S. federal employees in 1830, which is pretty crazy. Um, and the the claim is that the press essentially came first while the parties came after. So a reader of a Hamilton newspaper, you were a reader first and then a Hamilton party supporter second. Um, and today, you can just pattern match that directly into today and say, oh, great. Well, what you consume shapes your worldview, filter bubbles, etc. Um, and you then based off of your red feed or your blue feed, you'll then think a certain way. Um, and so just thinking about how information determines our governance is a pretty fascinating question. And you can kind of abstract it a bit to say, hey, A, we need coherent sense-making to have effective governance. Essentially, coherent sense-making, how information flows within our system, is a necessary precursor to effective governance. And the second piece here is that and just an, an interesting question to think about is if information kind of informs, is a precursor to or informs the types of governance that we have, um, just like the press inform the nation state, then what kinds of governance in the future will form given our new system of n-dimensional distributed trust and information? So that's just a question, an open question to think about. Um, so with that, I hope you enjoy the episode. One final piece thing about technology and society the folks at the media lab and harvard's berkman klein center like ethan are doing really really good work here so if you're interested in learning more about um, these kind of tech society topics definitely check out mit's media lab or berkman klein center harvard's berkman klein center to learn more okay so with that sorry for a long intro but enjoy today's episode with ethan goodbye Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. In this podcast, we take a systems thinking approach to doing good in the world. We have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes. And today we're focusing on Series A, Macro Systems, where we ask the question, where are we as humanity headed? And today I'm very happy to introduce introduce Ethan Zuckerman to the show. Ethan is the director of the MIT Center for Civic Media, a wide-ranging initiative that is exploring the intersection of communication, technology, and power. And he also invented the pop-up ad. Um, So Ethan, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Oh, happy to be with you, Reese. And uh, apologies to everyone for the pop-up ad. That was a long, long time ago, and I'm 
Not in the advertising. <laughs> You've ruined our lives, Ethan. <laughs> You've started the a long series of of surveillance capitalism. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, we won't talk too much about the pop up ad today. Um, but we'd love to kind of start by diving into the Center for Civic Media. Um, so, could you just give us and me and our listeners an overview of what is the Center for Civic Media and what are kind of your goals, your projects, that kind of thing? Sure. So Center for Civic Media actually came about because friends at the Knight Foundation were really interested in trying to get the MIT Media Lab thinking about the future of journalism and maybe the future of business models behind journalism. And so rather than just looking at the sort of narrow space of professional journalism, they coined the term civic media to refer to all the different things that people do in making media and disseminating it as a way of trying to make social change. I joined about two years into the project, took it over, and found myself essentially saying, look, I think the future of journalism has everything to do with helping people figure out how to be powerful civic actors. Hmm. So my sense is that the main reason we have difficulty supporting journalism these days is that journalism doesn't do a terrific job helping us figure out how to be effective citizens. And so my work has been trying to think about what does it mean to be an effective citizen these days? Um, It's probably not just voting and talking to your representative. It might be anything from leading an online campaign to get rid of uh, advertising on Breitbart all the way through to trying to build a blockchain-based participation and governance system. It's a much broader uh, portfolio. It's a much broader toolkit than we used to have uh, to figure out how to be a civic actor. And I'm interested in, in how that toolkit's changing and how media is changing to accommodate the toolkit. Love it. Um, I think that there's a lot to dive into there. I think, I mean... As you say, I think a lot of people come at this from just purely the perspective of, hey, what's happening to journalism? And like, how can we change that? And what you did is you said, hey, let's think more about how we as people can become more powerful, more effective citizens. And what is our toolkit and how is that toolkit changing um, in the age of the the internet and digital media? So could you kind of maybe talk a little bit about, I mean, I'm thinking about the ways that you know, it allows us, empowers us to do, have co-creative experiences on the internet and do those kind of like new power style things like creating online campaigns. Could you talk a little bit more about some of these new kinds of toolkits that you're seeing emerge um, on the internet? Sure. The, the main thing that I try to work with, with my students and other teams is this question of, of what's the theory of change. Mm-hmm. So generally the theory of change around civics and participation is let's elect good people into positions of power and then they will do good things, and we will get the results that we're looking for. And that's probably not the most effective form of civics these days. Mm -hmm. Um, First of all, we have very, very low public trust in our institutions, and particularly our government institutions. A lot of people are finding that even if they are able to help elect the people that they're really excited about, those people actually have a lot of difficulty making change in practice. Right now, law, passing and enforcing law, may not be the strongest lever for change, at least in the United States. But there's at least three other levers that people are having quite a bit of success with. One is the lever of norms. This is trying to change people's minds and people's behavior. So a way to think about this might be uh, around equal marriage and gay rights in the United States. Um, before the Supreme Court announced a decision uh, requiring 
legal recognition of equal marriage, you had massive cultural shifts in how people felt about gay and lesbian relationships. Some of that came from Hollywood. Some of it came from television shows. Some of it came from just lots of people having gays and lesbians in their lives who they loved and cared about. But that change in norms preceded a change in laws. Two other levers that we spend a lot of time talking about, one is markets. Sometimes you can make massive changes through trying to get people to adopt a new system because it makes financial sense. A great way to think about that in the US right now might be solar energy, rooftop solar, which has become um, economically logical in many states. And so you now have this weird phenomenon where California is essentially carbon neutral. It actually produces an enormous amount of its power um, via solar, despite the fact that we haven't been able to pass laws trying to figure out how to tackle the carbon economy. Instead, market mechanisms have really changed the game. And then the one that I suspect your, your listeners may be most interested in is this idea that you can make change through code, through technology, through architecture. You know, here I'm using the, the language of Larry Lessig. I was about to say, about yeah, I'm hearing it. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, I, I, Larry and I joke about this. I refer to this as the inverted Lessig. I sort of mm. take Larry's idea that um, you can regulate society through all these things. I see all of these as tools for social change. Uh, and, and, and Larry so far has, has blessed the idea. But making change through code, a great example of that um, might be looking at something like Signal. Uh, where in the wake of the Snowden revelations, we actually didn't get a whole lot of legal change saying let's protect privacy, but we've gotten these very, very strong and easy-to-use technical systems that do a good job of giving us increased resistance to surveillance. So my message more than anything else is if you can't make change one way, don't back away from the process of making change. Think about what other levers you might have the chance to manipulate. Yep, yep. I like that. I think that, and I think that a lot of people these days feel, um, yeah, disheart. As you said, the the trust in institutions is at all time lows, and people feel kind of sad about, or some people feel, many people feel sad about the state of reality. And they're like, "What can I do? Everything feels really hard." And as you say, "Hey, there's lots of different ways to enact change, and we can kind of, um, and and let's explore them." I think one thing that I would find interesting to get your take on is so from this theory that uh, Ethan and I are referencing here. This is what's called the pathetic dot theory. And it was um, uh, initially produced by Lawrence Lessig in 1998. And it's about um, how you can essentially enact change um, within uh, through through laws and through markets and through architecture and through norms. And something I think is interesting with blockchain and cryptocurrency is that in some ways it kind of collapses those two final pieces that you talked about there, the markets piece and the incentives piece, and then also maybe the code and the architecture piece. Um, do, do you kind of, because the, you can, uh, cryptocurrency and blockchains kind of allow for new kinds of incentive mechanisms, and they also allow for new kinds of like distributed code and architecture. Do you see a kind of convergence or collapsing of those two final pieces within the blockchain ecosystem? So I think what I would say is almost every change strategy ends up involving all four mm -hmm. levers of yep. so let, let me just look at solar energy for a moment here um the reason we're having a rooftop solar revolution is first and foremost solar technology has gotten much better uh the panels are much higher efficiency second we've gotten market mechanisms uh that mean that 
you can borrow against the future um, solar panels on your roof. You can basically use equipment financing, which is a really cheap way of buying something rather than essentially putting you know thirty or forty thousand dollars up. So there's all sorts of market revolutions that take place there. Um, third, there's legal structures that make solar possible. Uh, when I put a solar system on my house, it was in part because my state and the federal government both had really good tax breaks associated with installing solar. And then the final one is that there's a norms-based piece of it. Solar advertises itself. When I drive around my small rural Western Massachusetts town, I'm discovering that about one out of three of my neighbors has solar on their barns. Wow. At a certain point, I found myself sort of thinking, geez, do I really want to be behind? Yeah, you got to keep up with the Joneses. <laughs> You got it. Well, that's exactly right. And, and the Jones has put in a really nice solar system <laughs> and hot water as well. Um, so those four levers working together end up being more powerful. I completely agree with you. Any of the sort of decentralization approaches inevitably combine at the very least code as a lever for change as well as markets. I think they're also going to need to incorporate norms, which is to say people may have to adopt systems that are more confusing, uh, that are less intuitively understandable, um, but they feel better about having control over, having distribution of control. Uh, And then in the long run, of course, and and, uh, the blockchain space doesn't much like to talk about this, uh, there are going to be laws that affect this space. Oh, no. (laughs) Trying to figure out how to have a legal structure um, that protects what's good about the blockchain as well as sort of thinks about mitigating some of the downsides those probably need to come into place as well. So I don't think blockchain necessarily separates us from any of this. I think a lot of people who are trying to propose change mechanisms through blockchain are basically putting code in market-based theories of change and probably do need to think more about laws and norms uh, as part of that process. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think that there's a from a law perspective, a lot of folks will come at it and say, hey, we're trying to disintermediate or what you know decentralize the nation state and we don't need to uh, play into the various laws that exist. And in fact, when you start looking at these laws, although some of them were created a long time ago and they've but many of them have the things that they do, like consumer protections, for example, with uh, investing, make some sense, you know, and, and, and we shouldn't necessarily have the same um, rigid law structure as we had before. You may might need more kind of multidimensional laws in order to, uh, you know, to map onto our more complex reality. But yeah, I totally agree with you that laws are going to need to be something that people take uh, more into account from, especially from a regulatory perspective. I think the norms one is actually very interesting and is something that, um, yeah, the crypto world has some strange norms around it these days. Um, this is something that I personally harp on a lot. Um, and I think I think you have, as you say, the, the blockchain space now, a lot of people got into it initially from either the market perspective or the code perspective, you know, coming from a 2008 financial crisis and being, you know, displeased with that or coming from a displeased with aggregators like, you know, Facebook or whatever and saying, hey, let's make a new decentralized internet. And they've kind of not taken as much into account the, the norm perspective. Um and in the, the other issues, you have people on crypto Twitter and there are various memes or whatever. So I think we'll see uh, the norms within the blockchain ecosystem. I hope that they um, continue to vector towards good instead of bad. Um, do you think so? So recently you wrote a, uh, a piece for Wired called Decentralized Social Networks Sound Great, Too Bad they're ne- They'll Never Work. Um, 
do you kind of want to, you know, as we dive more into the blockchain side of some of uh, the perspective that you have here, could you talk about that article and why you think something like Steemit or basic attention token or what have you might not be a good fit for our future? Sure. So uh, a couple of things on that. The first would be a reminder that authors never write their headlines. Nice. And uh, <laughs> like Wired uh, are, are often looking for something provocative yeah. to uh, the clicks on it. Um, the second is, is that just to be super clear, this was um, kind of the summary of a report that I wrote along with my colleagues, Neha Narula, uh, who directs the Digital Currency Initiative at uh, the MIT Media Lab, and Chelsea Barabas, um, who is a really thoughtful technology and society researcher who came out of my lab and now works for the MIT Media Lab. So the three of us are co-authors on it. And just to be um, perfectly frank on this, those two women are, are far more knowledgeable about the blockchain than I am. I'm sort of the old man <laughs> being dragged into this space, and, and they are the, the crypto experts on this. Nice. Um, we did a year-long study for the Knight Foundation around this idea of decentralized social networks. And we did it in part because I was uh, one of the technical guys behind one of the first social networks uh, well before not only Facebook and Twitter, but before um, LinkedIn, Friendster, MySpace. Um, it was a company called Tripod, mm -hmm. and it was a competitor to GeoCities back in the day mm -hmm. when social networking meant put up your own personal homepage. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I found myself sort of looking at was realizing that in that business, we inadvertently took the decentralized web, where people put up web pages on their own servers all around the world, and centralized it. And suddenly, for the first time in 1998, we had 15 million different users using our service, using a single cluster of servers in Western Massachusetts to host their web pages. And so on the one hand, what we did is we made publishing online loads simpler. There were many, 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 many people who would not have started their own websites, who wouldn't have gotten up their own web servers, who wouldn't have dropped the T1 into their houses, who were suddenly publishing through Tripod. At the same time, we massively centralized and in many ways made much more fragile the web as it has developed. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at that decision that we made in the late 1990s and realizing you can sort of draw a line through it. It's been possible to run decentralized, federated social networks for quite some time, but very, very few people do it. And we were curious, A, why have so few people adopted this so far? And B, whether things like IPFS whether things like Steemit and sort of distributed tokens, whether uh, some of the innovations of cryptocurrency would change the dynamics. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion we came to was, yeah, probably not. <laughs> that right now, the real issue for adoption beyond an initial 1% of users is about usability. It's about ease of use. And it's also about who owns the relationships with your friends and who owns the relationship with your content right now we're in a situation where it's pretty hard to leave facebook not only is it fairly hard to sort of export your content and import it somewhere else and actually have it work but it's nigh impossible um, to take the that web of relationships from facebook and put it somewhere else mm -hmm. 
so I look at projects like Mastodon, which technically are, are, are pretty well accomplished. I mean, Mastodon really has its act together, um, but has not made a meaningful dent in Twitter. And my argument is that it's got much, much less to do with the technology. It has much more to do with the usability and the argument for the user. For most users for whom decentralization is not a political decision, they have no good reason to use it right now. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think uh, that's very true. And even when you go on to something like uh, Steam it, it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, why would anybody want to go on to Steam? You go there and it's just a bunch of crypto people. It's a, it's a crypto filter bubble environment, you know, and it's just a bunch of people talking about crypto. Um, so I guess, so what would you say then? Because I think that some people think, they're like sad about the state of our current social networks. And they're like, oh man, maybe we can build something, you know, with a blockchain based distributed system, whether it's, you know, something like more like Mastodon or something more like Steemit or basic attention token. And then, and if you say, hey, that's not really going to work right now, should they, what should they, where should they go with their energy, I guess? Sure. So I, I think the first thing that I would say, and I, I say this to my engineering students all the time, and, and I should just explain, like, what I basically do for a living is break young engineers' hearts. <laughs> so I, I work at MIT. I have some of the brightest, most ambitious young engineers sort of show up in my office and they all want to say, here's how I'm going to change the world. And our first conversation explains why it's not going to nice. work. Um, so I'm basically a giant continuous buzzkill. <laughs> nice. um, but part of what I try to do with these students is, is get them to understand what problem it is that they're really trying to solve. Right now, I think blockchain is a classic uh, you know, hammer looking for a nail. I think everyone has decided that this is such a cool technology. And to be clear, it's an incredibly cool technology that it's going to solve all sorts of problems with things like social networks. The problems with social networks are really much more this question of what are they good for and how are current ones not meeting our needs very well. Mm -hmm. So when you look at something like Facebook, for me, the problem with Facebook is that it's a totally undifferentiated social network that's trying to solve every problem from how do I stay in touch with far-flung family members all the way through to how do I have support communities around issues that I care about to how do I get my news and information around the world. And those probably can't be solved simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Probably need different tools to do those things. So let's imagine a social network that did one thing well. Um, friend of mine, uh, Yael Gonim, um, started a company called Parlio. And the goal behind this social network was to have respectful, civil conversations between people who don't agree with one another. And Yael built this coming out of the revolution in Tahrir Square. He was excited about how Facebook use, was used to mobilize people, but then he felt like once people actually got to the hard work of saying, how should we govern Egypt, it didn't work very well anymore. And so he wanted to create a space around politeness and respect. Uh, and he did. He built a whole social network around this. It ended up um, being uh, purchased um, by Parlio and um, has now turned into um, sort of informing the rest of their question answering businesses. But I loved this idea that he started a social network 
uh, sorry, it was purchased by Quora. I'm getting my names confused here. But I love that Parlio um, had this whole different paradigm of what a social network could be. So the first thing that I would say is think about social networks that have very specific purposes and then work towards building the environment that allows those simultaneous social networks to exist. And for me, that probably means a deep federation, deep integration, deep interoperability, as well as rights to export your friend lists and your data. The second thing I would say is understand that social networks come about when people have a very specific need. I did some research late in the process of our study on how Mastodon was growing and was able to find that one of the ways that Mastodon was growing a ton last year was in a very particular subculture in Japan, which was the Lollicon subculture. So these were folks who exchange images, not photographic, usually drawn images uh, of underage individuals in sexual situations. Mm -hmm. And this is something that Twitter doesn't support and Twitter will chase it off. Um, So a lot of the people who are fond of this sort of art went on to Mastodon and created servers that were able to support this content. And, you know, while this is emphatically not my thing, I actually think that's exactly what decentralized social networks should be for. They should be for people saying, hey, we have a critical mass of people who want to interact in this way. And so we're going to create our own community and our own resources for it to happen. But the only reason these folks got off of Twitter and onto Mastodon was they had content that couldn't be supported on that other social Mm -hmm. network. So right now, I'm not sure there's a great reason to be on Steemit instead of being on Reddit. I think if you hit a point where you simply can't do what you want to do anymore on Reddit, then we'll be a much more reasonable place for people to move to these other platforms. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think there's a a lot of truth there. And and I think it's funny that you talk about all the uh, enthusiastic, bright minded, you know, developers and entrepreneurs that you just go, look, it's going to be tough. (laughs) You know, (laughs) changing the world is hard. Um, And I think the I think the example of Parlio versus Facebook and how Facebook is kind of bundled together a bunch of different uh, jobs, essentially, um, I'm reminded of uh, Zeynep Tufekci's um, affordances framework, where certain technology platforms give certain affordances for certain things and the the affordances that Facebook gave during the Arab Spring um, in terms of congregating people, convening people, allowing them to protest and kind of a sense like a essentially breaking a a coordination problem, allowing them to all come to to centralized places. That was those powers that Facebook gave there were different. Facebook couldn't give the power that Parlio was trying to give around governance and decision making and clarity and and those things. Um, So I think that that at a, at a root level, I think that at least the, the similarity between what you're talking about and what the blockchain world talks about is that as we are designing these systems, we need to think about what the systems are designed for and you know what are their key metrics, what are their main goals, and how do we achieve them? And that's something like Facebook, whose primary metric is just how much time are people spending on the platform, that that might not, be, um, that might not work for other things. We need to think about different incentive sets for different goals. Um, Cryptocurrency is vibrant and exciting, but it's not without its share of bad actors. Exchanges and personal accounts can get hacked, computers can be infected with malware. Left unprotected, your digital wealth is up for grabs. Don't let yourself be a victim. 
TP is the safest and simplest way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and other tokenized assets. This hardware wallet is a separate device that you control. Brought to you by the pioneering team at Shapeshift, Keep Key works with the wallet software on your computer to manage your private keys and transactions. Your device is pen protected, which provides protection if it falls into the wrong hands. Its large display lets you carefully view and approve every transaction. And if your key is ever lost or stolen, you can safely recover your device without compromising its private keys. The bottom line, you'll sleep easier knowing that your digital wealth is safe and secure. Visit keepkey.com to order yours today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. So this actually leads me to a question I wanted to ask earlier. Um, and kind of taking a step back from um, specific kind of blockchain use cases and more towards the Center for Civic Media, what would you say your, at the Center for Civic Media, what would your primary metric for success be um, in terms of, yeah, yeah, if you were to say, hey, in five years, we've been successful, here's how we show it with a metric. What would that metric be? That's, that's such a fantastic question. Um, I think for me, my metrics have everything to do with shifting the language and the thoughts that people end up using. So one of the things that I figured out years ago about moving to an academic institution is that it's not the greatest place to start a business. It's not the greatest place to write software. Um, But man, it's a great place and a great platform from which to put ideas out in the world. Mm -hmm. And having that ability to, first of all, sort of workshop ideas with super smart people, uh, and then all the different ways in which academics can get ideas out into the world, uh, including through uh, building demonstration projects that don't necessarily have to make money, but can be provocations, is super helpful. So just to give a, a concrete example of this, right? So we wrote this paper, we essentially said, look, the reason that we're you know, reluctant to say something like Steeman is going to change the world is a people don't have terrific reasons for adopting it right now. B the usability of all of these crypto platforms really stinks compared to uh, consumer social media out there. And C the environment isn't right for this. Um, what you would need for an environment for a platform like Steemit to succeed is one where it's really easy not only to move your content over there, but second, to integrate Steemit into the other media that people are consuming. So what you really need is a product that lets you read Facebook and Twitter and Mastodon and Reddit and Steemit and all the other things that you're on and sort of interact with all of them without switching between all these different incompatible clients. So we built something kind of for the fun of it called Gobo. And Gobo is a social network aggregator with adjustable filters. So with Gobo, you're able to incorporate your Twitter feed, your Facebook feed, in the longer run, Mastodon, Steam, and so on and so forth, and then have sort of adjustable filters. So you can say, hey, today I'm not really interested in politics. You know, give me less politics, give me more funny. Or today I'm actually really in the mood to explore Um, give me less viral stuff and and give me more uh, underrepresented stuff. Or, you know what? Uh, I don't hear from enough women in my life. Uh, Let me silence the men for a while and let me hear mostly from the women. So that's up at gobo.social. It's not a commercial startup. 
and uh, we don't have any way to make money from it. It's a provocation. And it's out there so that when I sit down with Facebook, I can point to senior people at Facebook and say, look, your tool should work like mm-hmm. this. And if it doesn't work like this, at the very least, it should support the existence of tools like this. And then we have wonderful fights about yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, other open APIs. Uh, and- but well, that's right, exactly. And that, that's that's where you end up. And that and that's cool, right? I mean, if you're actually talking about issues at that point rather than just yelling at each other. Um, but that's a way of working that works well in an academic context. You do the research, you publish the paper, you do some demonstrations, you advocate around it. And at the end of the day, I don't care much whether these ideas get pushed forward by me or by someone else who takes the ideas and runs with them or by Facebook. Everything that we do in my lab um, is, is open source. It ends up out there on GitHub. If anyone wants to play with it, they can. The vast majority of publishing we do is under Creative Commons for the same reason. But my metrics of success are when does the language and the conceptual vocabulary that I'm using, when does that get picked up and when does that sort of sway these larger debates? And I realize that sounds super abstract, but that's kind of how, um, how you have influence when you're trying to shape a whole field and, and, and a whole way of people working on things. Yeah, yep. I think that makes sense. And I'll, I'll, I'll push back on it for a second. But first, I want to say two cool things about what you talked about. One is about these meta social networks. And you could call them like, some of them are like interoperability frameworks, like the ones that you're talking about. Some of them are kind of protocols for interacting um, that allow for different kind of UIs to be put on those different protocols. One that I love is Red Feed, Blue Feed. Do you know that one? Yeah, 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 which is yeah. just it shows you, hey, what are the most liberal people seeing on Facebook? And what are the most conservative people seeing on Facebook? And just purely being able to see that as a thing is just it's very helpful. Then just like, wow, people have different feeds. And this is what they look like. Um, the other thing that I thought that you said there, which is really great is you don't really care. It, your incentive set is different than the incentive set of a venture capitalist or a startup person um, who and their incentive set is generally when they make something, they're trying to produce value for the world. And then they're trying to capture that value um, for themselves, generally speaking, and try to get ROI for their investors and their LPs or whatever. And for you, you're coming from more of a, you could call it a creative commons, a hashtag open mindset, an anti-rivalrous mindset, which says, hey, you don't really care who actually does this thing. You just know that based off looking at reality today, our current social networks are not in alignment with us. And if we can make ones that are in alignment with us, that'd be great. Whether you make it, whether a company makes it, whether Facebook makes it, you don't really care. You just care that it gets made. Um, so I think that that's a very powerful mindset. Um, so, but, but I so those are two positive things. I want to push back on the, the metric. Yeah. So if you, so I agree with your abstract metric. And I think that that's a good one. If you were to try to quantify that, um, how would you try to like quantify that and show a graph of that going up and to the right or whatever? Well, so the funny thing about that is we've actually built the tools to quantify that. So, um, and not specifically for us, really for different social movements. Mm. So um, remember during the years of Occupy, uh, when people would sort of say, well, what is Occupy good for? And people would respond and saying, well, we're finally talking about inequality, right? Inequality has become um, the language of, of how we talk about social change. One of the questions that I always had was, well, was that true? So how would you answer a question like that? Well, one of the ways that you would answer a question like that is you would look at 
a broad swath of media pre-occupy. And then you would look at a broad swath of media post-occupy and you would try to figure out how much more often people were talking about inequality. Yep. Um, to do that, you need a tool that lets you sample or collect a lot of media over a long period of time and do quantitative analysis of it. So about 10 years ago, we started building something called Media Cloud. I started building it over at the Harvard Klein, uh, Berkman Klein Center. And now it's between Berkman Klein and Center for Civic Media. We have many, 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 many terabytes of data. And they're all designed to let you ask questions like, how much more coverage did Trump get than Clinton during the 2016 elections? Or how has the Black Lives Matter movement changed how we talk about police violence? And I'll use that last one just as a concrete example. Um, We did a study, this is now in review for a big communications journal, looking at deaths of unarmed people of color at the hands of the police over the course of three years before and after Michael Brown's death. And it turns out that, you know, 12 months after Mike Brown is killed, the average death of a person of color at the hands of the police, an unarmed person of color at the hands of the police, gets about 11 times as much attention as it did before. And the way that we talk about those deaths is really different. Rather than talking about it as an isolated incident, um, you're 10 times more likely, post-Michael Brown, to see a story that ties that death into other deaths of uh, black civilians at the hands of the police. So by doing that sort of quantitative media analysis, we're able to say, wow, look at this. Whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's someone else, we changed how we talk about police violence against people of color. And that change lasts for 18 months and we can watch it and we can watch it go away. So being able to quantify how we talk about social problems is a huge piece of getting towards norms-based theories of change. Mm -hmm. The whole idea behind a norms-based theory of change is we want to change the concepts people are using. It's not that it's illegal to shoot unarmed black people. That's been illegal for a long time in the United States. But we have norms that suggest that black people, particularly young black men, are dangerous. And because of those norms, because of those biases, they get killed at a much higher rate by police uh, than young white men. And that's a norm that has to change. And the way that you change those norms is you have a dialogue about police violence. And so we're able to track what that dialogue looks like. We're able to track who the actors are in it. And we're able to give that information to social change organizations and say, how are you doing on this? Is this the way that you want to be working on this campaign? Is this working the way that you like? So I am absolutely able to look at how effective my work is. Most of the time I find out that it's not very effective. I'm not very successful (laughs) at what I try to do. Uh, but at least I've got the tools in place to, to check it nice. out. Yeah, I like that. So you've you've dog-fooded yourself by building something so that you can understand norms-based theories of change um, through quantifying social network uh, data. I like that. I think that there's a interesting one that um, it would be cool if we looked at, uh, which is that within the crypto world, there is HODL as a meme, H-O-D-L, um, a.k.a. hold your cryptocurrency even when it's going down. Um, don't sell it. And then there's this new one, especially within the Ethereum ecosystem, called Biddle, a.k.a. Build, um, which 
which is, hey, people, if we want to make this new great decentralized world, we can't just like hold on to our cryptocurrency. We actually have to build this, the infrastructure for this decentralized future. Yeah. Um, and so that has been a meme that has spread very quickly recently. Um, and so I'd be interested to, to use Media Cloud to look at that. Um, but we should. Oh, sorry. Go. Well, and the good news is, is you can't, right? Because the it's an open source system, so you can build your own instance. But even beyond that, you can go to mediacloud.org, sign up for an account, and at that point, you can search for those tags uh, and see how they're doing. Um, but even beyond that, you might even want to broaden out a little bit and essentially say, when we think about cryptocurrency, when are we thinking about this as an investment? When are we thinking about this as an architecture for future services? Uh, are we treating this as a penny stock? Are we treating this as an alternative currency? Are we treating this as an alternative financial system? You might end up with sort of different paradigms and trying to get a sense for over a period of time, how are those different narratives rising or falling? Yeah. Uh, but that's exactly the experiment you just described is exactly uh, why we built this tool. And now we spend an enormous amount of time trying to help social change organizations learn how to use it and answer those questions for themselves. Cool. Well, if you're a, if you're a listener, you should feel free to, to do that, or maybe I'll do it myself uh, and look at the how people are viewing holding versus biddling. Um, we're going to transition, actually, in this final section, though, away from um, specifically Center for Civic Media stuff and within the blockchain world and kind of go to more of like a macro-political take here. Um, you, Ethan, recently gave a talk um, about... This history of relationship essentially between the parties um, and between political parties and the press um, and those things are essentially the relationship between governance and kind of information. And there was a really crazy stat that you said, which is in 1835, 80 percent of federal jobs um, were in the United States Postal Service. Um, and in the talk, you said the words the press came first and then the parties came after. And I think as the blockchain ecosystem thinks more about how governance should work and how governance should be um, connected to information, this idea that actually the information came first and then the parties were kind of built around that information, I think is kind of fascinating. So could you kind of say more about uh, that history there and why you say the press came first and the parties came after? A absolutely. And I'll, I'll try to give the very compact version of this. But it's <laughs> it was a, a long time. Yeah. So. <laughs> really fun story. Basically, the way to think about this is that the founding fathers of the United States had a really tough information problem. They wanted to build a self-governing nation, um, but that nation was huge by contemporary standards. Uh, and communication was terrible at that moment. And if you think about being in the late 1700s and needing to have a conversation that involved people in Boston and in Charleston, mm -hmm. And having them talk meaningfully about, should we have a central bank? How do you do that? And the solution that they came up with was, you need to have a press. And to have a press, you need to have a post office. So the United States was really built around the post office as its most powerful federal institution. And certainly from the late 1700s through the mid-1800s, really before the Civil War, the Post was our single biggest and most powerful institution. And I think if I have the numbers right, it's 1830, it was 80% of the federal government worked for the Post yeah. Office. And the joke that I've made is that the U.S. government was basically a postal service with a very small bureaucracy and an itty-bitty tiny army attached mm -hmm. to it. Um, that was who we were as a nation. 
And what it led to were some crazy policies. It turned out that um, the way to make this work was to make it shockingly cheap to send newspapers back and forth. They were a tiny fraction of what sending private letters cost. Um, Newspapers could exchange copies with each other freely. And what that meant was that the average newspaper was getting thousands of other newspapers per year for free. And they were then essentially cutting and pasting from them. So the news was all about sharing other people's news at that point. In that environment, newspapers became highly partisan. And in many ways, the political parties, as we know them, emerged out of newspapers rather than the way around. Before you became a Hamilton supporter, you were reading Hamilton's New York newspaper. uh, And you were a subscriber to it. And that was part of where your ideology and your belief system came. And that was where the, the political parties started emerging from them. So... If you look back at American history, these really strong protections of the press combined with this pretty innovative spending to create an architecture that allowed and supported these dialogues. This is one of our sort of proudest heritages and legacies, and it's one that very few geeks and hackers know anything about, which is really a shame because it's a pre-digital internet space. Um... And it's literally what American democracy emerges from. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And I think it's also, I mean, it also, it as you say, it kind of flips the script in some ways. We think that the parties came first and then those parties then push out their information to people and then create the infrastructure or whatever. And you're like, well, it's, it's definitely a loop between those things. But often, in some ways, the press came first. And I think it's especially important for us to think about that as we enter this upcoming period of the digital information internet revolution and and how that changes internet and how also things like blockchain and other kinds of social networks change the way we can do governance and the way that we can um, create uh, social contracts and, and social groups with each other and organize. How do you see, if you kind of pattern match and kind of make history rhyme for a bit here, how do you see that American history kind of pattern matching into our current and mapping into our current future of information and governance? Well, it's interesting. I um, I think you could make the case that the ability for people to find like-minded groups and to make common cause and to try to figure out how to work together um, in an internet age is a direct parallel. Yeah. I do think what's interesting is that with the crypto space, there seems to be a, a, a movement towards saying, let's get the currency right and everything else falls into place. Um, and I don't know that history actually supports that all that neatly. Um, common currency is fairly late in the game uh, as far as the emergence of uh, the American nation. In fact, in many ways, this sort of chaotic situation where we've got all these competing currencies and how do you exchange them with one another um, is, is very much a reminder of what the early American experiment looked like. Um, I think more than anything, it's this question of how do people find each other around a common set of ideas? And then how do those ideas turn into self-governing spaces? And this is a place where um, I think I'm, I'm worried about the corrosive effects of something like Facebook where we're not getting a great deal of opportunity to govern ourselves. I look instead towards something like Reddit, which, you know, despite the community complaints, actually has an enormous amount of self-governance, has an enormous amount of power 
within those moderators. I look at someone like my former student, Nathan Matias, who has a project called Civil Servant, which is entirely designed to help Reddit moderators uh, learn how to govern their communities better and more inclusively. And I find myself sort of wondering whether that's a place where we could hope for uh, new emergent ideas and behavior to come from, from people getting together around common identities and common ideas, and then learning from how they govern and manage themselves to sort of think about um, how future emergent um, communities end up forming. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out both from the Facebook perspective, from the blockchain crypto perspective. Um, and, and I'm not sure. Yeah, I think at a high level, people should, understanding the history is always surprisingly helpful. That's what I've found. Um, well, we're pretty much out of time for today, um, but at a high level. So first off, Ethan, thank you so much for coming on the show. For my listeners, I, if you're, for many of you who are interested, not just in blockchain and crypto from a, you know, like a ICO or, you know, speculative perspective, but from a how it will change society perspective, I'd highly recommend checking out um, Ethan and the MIT Media Lab more generally in the Center for Civic Media and also the Berkman Klein Center um, at Harvard. Both of these places are, in my opinion, are the two places in the world that are doing the most work around how tech changes society. Um, and they're putting out lots of good stuff and thinking about it in a very serious way. So that's my recommendation to the listener. Um, Ethan, where can they find you on like Twitter, let's say? Sure. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm Ethan Z on Twitter. And you can find a lot of my writing at ethanzuckerman.com. And uh, yeah, hit me up on Twitter. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff, uh, including the people who think that I'm entirely misguided about uh, my skepticisms around decentralized social networks. Yes, perfect. Exactly. So if you're a steemit maximalist, um, please yell at uh, yell at Ethan a lot. <laughs> uh, well, Ethan, thanks again so much. Um, and a final note for my listeners, if you want to support me on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Reese Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Okay, thank you, everybody, and goodbye. Goodbye.